Grab a Bible this morning and find Psalm 119. This is week two of four that we're going to study Psalm 119, breaking it into four different sermons. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along with the notes if you like to do that. Everything will be on the screen as well. If you were here last week, you know, we'll just jump right in, that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and you may remember that 171 of the 176 verses mention the Word of God, mention the Bible itself. And there's a number of different terms used in those 171 references. Sometimes the Word of God is called testimonies or ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, law, rules, promise, truth, judgment, pledge, even word. And so the psalmist over and over and over again, he's talking about the Bible itself. It's a magnificent poem. It is an acrostic poem. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 sections in Psalm 119. And if you just look at the text, it begins in verse 1 with the Aleph section. Your Bible may have a note above verse 1 that says Aleph. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the first letter of the first word in every line of this first stanza, verse 1 to 8, begins with the letter Aleph. And then you move on to the bait section and the gimel all the way through, and it is an acrostic poem. The Hebrews love to write poetry like this. They like to write acrostic poetry as a, a memory device. Remember, many of these people wouldn't have been able to just go down to the Christian bookstore and buy a copy of the scriptures. And so writing in this way helped people to be able to remember God's word. So this is a great acrostic poem. One last tidbit I'll give you this week comes from one of my preaching heroes, Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1800s, and he's remembered as a great preacher and a great theologian and a great uh, trainer and teacher of pastors. He wrote a commentary on the book of Psalms, and the commentary is called The Treasury of David. It's still used today. I have a copy of it in my office. And as he wrote about Psalm 119, he said this, we might do well to commit it to memory. That may seem like a daunting task for you, but you can memorize the things that you want to memorize. I promise you can. You memorize the words to songs, and you sing them, you turn a a song on the radio and you just start singing along, you haven't heard that song in years, you've memorized that. It's something that you've put into your brain and you've spent time listening to it and thinking about it and running it through your mind and it's just stuck there. And so Spurgeon, I don't know if he memorized Psalm 119, but he at least said, and I agree with him, this would be a great passage to memorize and to commit to memory. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this second chunk. We're going to read Psalm 119, verse 49 to verse 88. And then we'll pray and then we'll jump in and see what these sections of this poem have to say about the Word of God. So we'll start in Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. 
I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is, like unfeel- is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise, according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask for ears to hear. We ask for eyes to see. We ask for hearts to receive your word and to understand your word and apply it to our lives. We do pray that your presence would be real among us as we have sung and now as we listen to what you have to say to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I went to Amarillo High School, and my junior and senior year in high school, I had an English teacher named Deanie Davis, Deanie Davis. And I got to thinking about Miss Davis this year, so I did what any of us do when somebody crosses your mind and you want to know what's happening to them or happened to them. I Googled her. So I got online and I Googled Deanie Davis, English teacher, Amarillo, and I found her, and I was surprised to find her still alive because I just remember in high school, she seemed really, really old. She was probably not that old. She's still alive. She's still teaching in Amarillo, teaching at a different school. She was at Amarillo High, retired from Amarillo High, and now she's teaching at a Catholic high school in Amarillo. And so I looked her up, found her email, sent her an email, said hello, 
said, hey, I remember you, just wanted to say hi, I liked your class, I liked you as a teacher, and she actually wrote back. And so me and Deanie, we had a little email this week, and it was nice. The reason I remember her primarily is that she was really funny, and she had a sense of humor that I really particularly liked. It was very dry and very sarcastic and very witty, and she used to say things to people in class like, Do you ever have a teacher that would say there are no stupid questions, encourage you to ask a question? Well, Miss Davis would say, that's a really stupid question. I just, why did you ask that? Why would you say something like that? She didn't mind you asking a stupid question. She was just going to tell you that was a stupid question. I don't understand why you would say something like that. So she was funny. I liked her. We got along well. She was a hard teacher. And uh, she was sort of one of those teachers you know as she didn't put up with a lot of stuff. She was pretty firm, pretty strict. And one of the things that stands out to me when I think about my junior and senior year in Miss Davis's English class, she would give us these weekly quizzes based on things we had read, and then we'd have tests from time to time. And she thought it was funny on our quizzes or on our tests to ask questions, and in the question, she would put a vocabulary word that more than likely we didn't know as juniors and seniors in high school. So you're going through this test and you read the question and the question says something like, so you've read this assignment, was such and such character in the reading assignment, was this a voluble character? And some of you may know what voluble is. Some of you may be getting your phone out to Google it right now and look it up. Junior in high school, we didn't know what that word meant. And so you have a question on a test, even if you did the reading, you can't answer it because you don't know what it means. However, in the back of Miss Davis's room, she had an entire wall of dictionaries just lined up all the way in the back of the classroom on the shelf. And at any point in her class, quiz, test, assignment, in the middle of class, whatever, you could go back and you could get one of those dictionaries and you could look the word up. So if you're taking the test and you come to the thing and it says, was this character voluble? And you say, I don't know what voluble means. How am I supposed to know if they're voluble or not. Well, you get up, you go to the back of the room, you get the dictionary, you open up and you say, oh, talkative. Yes or no, this person was or was not talkative. And you could answer the question. You would be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be surprised if you've been in high schools, how few people would actually get up, walk to the back of the classroom, pick up a dictionary, walk back to their seat and open it up. She could have very easily just set that dictionary inside each desk. She could have just laid them out on everybody's table saying, you're going to need this. I'm just going to put it right here for you. She could have opened it up to the right page for us, the V section, and it's just right there in front of you, voluble, highlighted the words, stuck it in front of your face. She just left them in the back of the room, and most of the students never got up to go back there and pick up a dictionary. Now, maybe their vocabulary was better than mine. Maybe they didn't need one. Or maybe... They were just too plain lazy to get up and find the answer right underneath their nose. I hope you realize that the answers you need are right under your nose. They're right here. Not all of the answers you may like to have. For example, in my Sunday school class, we talked about, talked about the book of Job this morning. There's some questions asked in the book of Job that are just never answered. But the answers you need are here. And having one of these at home, on the shelf, is of no value, value to you. It's like a dictionary in the back of the English class. It's not going to help you. 
Having your phone with the, the version Bible app or the ESV Bible app or whatever Bible app you like to have on your phone is of no value if you don't open it and use it. And I just think it's interesting that right in the middle of this book is Psalm 119. It's almost the very middle chapter in the whole Bible when you count how many chapters before it and how many chapters after it. Just right square in the middle, the longest chapter in the Bible, and the whole thing, 171 out of 176 verses about the Bible. And it's like you open to the middle. Where should I open? You just open to the middle. And it's like this megaphone just blaring out at you. Here's the answers. They're right in front of you. All the answers you need to know are right here. You just have to read it. You've got to open it, and you've got to use it. And so as we continue in this study of Psalm 119, this morning I want you to see five truths about the Word of God. Very simple truths, but very important truths. And then we'll sum it all up. First truth is this. God always remembers His Word. God always remembers His Word. Look what he says in verse 49. This is an interesting prayer request. 119.49. Remember your word to your servant. This is the psalmist talking to God, praying to God, making a request of God. And the request is, God, I'm the servant, you're the one who gives the word, and I want you to remember the word that you've given to me. Now, if you're sort of theologically minded, doctrinally minded, you may back up and say, wait a minute, God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end. It's not like he's going to forget his word. In fact, it would be impossible because of who God is for him to forget the word. Why would you pray for God to do something when it's impossible for him to do the opposite? And I don't have a real good answer for that other than to say people did it all the way through the Bible. When you go through the Bible and you read about how some of these men and women prayed, over and over and over again, they're praying, God, remember what you said to me. Don't forget your word. Don't forget your promises. And if I can just be real honest with you, this entire book from Genesis to Revelation is one long story of how God always remembers his word. That's a good summary of the Bible. If somebody asked you, what's in the Bible? You say, well, it's a story. It's one long story. It goes way, way back. It goes all the way into the future. And the one story, they say, what's it about? It's about God remembering his word. He always keeps his word. In the garden, when he said to Adam and Eve, someday I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Or many years later when he said to Abraham, one of your offspring is going to bless the entire world, all the nations, all the families. Or when he said to David, one of your children is going to sit on an eternal throne as the king. Or when he said to Isaiah, someday I'm going to send someone soon who's going to bear the sins of my people. He's making these promises. He's giving his word. He's putting his reputation and his character on the line. And when you flip from Malachi to Matthew, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, you realize he remembered. He remembered. He said he was going to send someone to crush the serpent's head, to bless all the nations, to be our king, and to bear our sins. He, he did it. He remembered. 
And when you get to the end of the Bible, you should just compare the end chapters of Revelation to the end chapters of Isaiah. In the the end of the book of Isaiah, God's making all these promises about what it's going to be like someday. And you get to the of the, the book of Revelation, you say, it's almost like he just copied the end of Isaiah and put it in here. Everything he said he was going to do, he's going to do. He always keeps his word. And you need to understand that. I need to remember that. When God gives his word, when God makes a promise, he always remembers his word. And the psalmist begins right here saying, remember your word to your servant. Secondly, not only does God remember his word, but we should remember his word. We should remember it. God remembers his word by keeping his promises, by doing what he said he's going to do. We remember God's word by obeying it, listening to it, not letting it go in one ear and out the other, but actually doing what it says. There's lots of things in this this eighth section that talk about obeying, but I want you to look at verse 57. It's, It's foundational to everything else. Verse 57 is so important. The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. The psalmist is saying, you, God, are the most important thing in my life, the central thing, the one thing, not one among many, but the one. You are my portion. You're my prize. You're the thing I'm chasing after. You're the thing I want more than anything else. And because that's true, because that's who you are in my life, I'm going to keep your word. His obedience is not motivated by fear of what may happen to him. His obedience is motivated by his love for God. So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. School started, right? Everybody's settling in. You're so tired already, you need a break tomorrow. So you get a break tomorrow. You get to stay home. Labor Day. But then you got to go back. We're just at the beginning of the school year. So this year, at our house, we have three or four kids in school. And the other night, we were sitting around the dinner table, and we were talking about school. How did this go? How's your teacher? All these different things. And somehow, we got on the subject of cheating And there was a general consensus. You can feel good about your pastor, how he's raising his kids. There was a general general consensus that cheating was not good. We should not do that. Cheating is bad. And so I just got curious as we sat there, and I just sort of threw this question out to the table and said, why is it bad? And they just kind of looked at me like, is this a trick question? I said, no, no, for real. Why don't we do it? Why don't we cheat? And so their wheels start thinking, they're thinking. Somebody pipes up, here was the first answer. This is a pretty good answer. Your buddy might have the wrong answer. (laughs) Very true. Very true. You know the uh, you know that test you have to pass to graduate high school. It's I don't know what it's called now. When I was in high school, Miss Davis's class, I took it in her class actually. It's called the toss test, and I had a buddy right next to me who copied the guy next to him word for word on multiple choice question and didn't realize that they have about 30 versions of the test and he didn't pass. And so you look at this guy and you say, your buddy might have the wrong answer. That's a good reason not to cheat. So I said, very good. Why else don't we do it? And somebody said, well, you get in trouble if you get caught. 
you get caught cheating, you're going to get in trouble. I said, that's very true. You get caught cheating, you're going to get in trouble by your teacher. You get caught cheating, you're going to get in trouble by me. So both very good answers. Let me just tell you this, though. If your reason for obeying is wrapped up in the negative things that may happen to you when you disobey, it's not enough to keep you away from sin. It's not enough. Because let me tell you what's going to happen, and we talked about this at the dinner table. The day's going to come where you look over at your buddy and you know your buddy has the right answer. You trust your buddy. You don't have any question that they know how to do the problem or get the answer or define the word voluble. Your buddy knows. And there's going to be a situation where you know you're not going to get caught. Where you really think, I can get away with this. I can sneak this one past the goal. It's okay. And what's going to motivate you in that situation to do the right thing? If your reason for obeying God is all wrapped up in the negative things that might happen to you if you disobey, it's not enough to keep you from sin. The only thing that in a lasting way, in a true way, will keep you from sin in your life is to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my portion. I love God more than I love cheating and getting the right answer. I love God more than doing what this person is encouraging me to do. I love God more than I want to do this other thing that my flesh is drawn to or pulled to. I love God more than anything else, and I will not follow this path of sin because it would be dishonoring to him, and I don't want to dishonor him. That has to be the foundation of obedience in your life. If you say to me, look, I'm not going to cheat on my spouse, I'm not going to tell lies, I'm not going to steal from my boss, I'm not going to do all these really, really, really bad things because then I would be miserable or because I might get in trouble or because I might go to jail or because it would ruin my life, I'm just going to tell you straight up, it's not enough motivation. It's not enough. Because the day's going to come where you want to do that thing and you know you can get away with it or you think you can get away with it. And the foundation of your obedience and the foundation of my obedience has to be a heart that says, my portion is the Lord and I love him more than I love this sin. And listen, if you're not there this morning, you might as well be honest about it and you better hit your knees and start praying, God, I want to love you more than I love this sin and I need you to change my heart. God, I need you not to take away the temptation necessarily, but I need you to do a work in me so that I see you as more valuable than this thing that I'm drawn to or I'm tempted with. So God remembers his word always and we should remember his word. Number three, God's word is good because God is good. Pretty basic, right? God's word is good because God is good. When you look at verse 65 down to verse 72, six times in those eight verses, the psalmist uses a version or a form of the word good. Maybe better, maybe good, maybe the, the word well, but he's using all these different forms of the same word And he's talking about things that are good. Look what he says in verse 68. You are good and you do good. Verse 65, you deal well or you deal good in incorrect grammar speak with your servant. Verse 66, you teach me good judgment. It's talking about good things. God is good. His word is good. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me. It's gooder. It's better 
than money and gold and silver. And then look what he says in verse 71. So interesting. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That verse just kind of pops out to me. I'm reading all these, it's good, it's better, it's well, it's good. And I say, yes, God is good. Yes, his word is good. Yes, he teaches good judgment. Yes, it's better than than gold or silver. And then you come to that one and I sort of hit the brakes and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was good for me, good for me, that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I read about an Englishman. He lived about the time Charles Spurgeon lived and uh, lived in the same country. His name was Dr. E.J. Watley. Remember, they didn't have back then the internet, Wikipedia. You couldn't get online and see pictures of things like this. I got this off Wikipedia. And uh, this is a tree. It grows only originally in southern Europe. And uh, it's called a larch tree. And this guy, Watley, he leaves England and he goes on some sort of holiday vacation. He goes to Southern Europe and he sees this tree. He's never seen one before. They don't have them in England, naturally. And I guess the guy was a tree lover and he thought this was the greatest tree he'd ever seen. He just said, the large tree. It's the most beautiful thing ever. We got to have them in England. I'm taking some back with me. So he dug up some small ones. I don't know how he got them back to England, but he gets them back to England. And he starts to think on the way. He says, you know, Southern Europe is kind of warm. England is kind of cold and dreary. I probably better put these larch trees in the greenhouse if they're going to live. So he throws these things in the greenhouse. He's so excited. He's got these beautiful trees. Comes back and checks out his larch trees in a few days, and they don't look so great. So he does a few tricks to try to, you know, help them and improve them. Whatever you do for a larch tree, he's trying all these tricks. And he comes back a few days later, and they're just, the thing is dying. And he just, he tries everything he knows to nurse it back to health, and the tree just won't make it. And finally, he says, the larch tree is a terrible tree. It's weak. It's not suited for England. And he takes these larch trees, and by his own account, he throws them on his garbage pile out in the cold. Guess what happened next? They grew, just exposed them to the cold, exposed them to the elements, and put them on a big pile of trash, and they started growing. And the psalmist says this, it is good for me that I was afflicted, because in my affliction, I learned things about your word that I would have never otherwise learned. I was ready to hear things from your word that otherwise I wouldn't have been ready to hear. And when I learn these things in your word and I I hear these things from your word in the midst of my affliction, I learn more about you and I'm drawn closer to you. And what he's saying is all these things are good, 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 good. And he says even my affliction is good. Why? Because God's word is good even in affliction and God is good even in your affliction and your suffering. And he says, these negative, dark, painful situations in my life, I look back on with a perspective of saying they were good for me because I learned new things about your word. Now, very closely related to that, here's number four. God's word is sure because God is faithful. His word is trustworthy. It's reliable. It's certain. Why? Because God is all of those things. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He's faithful. Verse 75 takes what we just talked about and takes it one step further. Look at verse 75, Psalm 119, 75. Remember, he just said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Verse 75. 
I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He's moved into a whole new category of thought here. In the previous section, he's talking about affliction and he's, he's able to say, unlike most of us, my affliction was a good thing. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Now he takes it a whole other step forward and he says, you were the one that afflicted me. It wasn't only something that you allowed to happen to me. You did it. You, God, afflicted me. And he says, you're faithful in that. You were faithful to afflict me. I don't know about you, but if somebody just came to me totally out of the blue and I wasn't preparing this sermon and I wasn't necessarily thinking about spiritual things and they said, just out of the blue, tell me how God has been faithful to you. I say, faithful? How has God been faithful to me? Well, maybe I would say something about Jesus. He was faithful to keep his word and to provide salvation through Jesus. Maybe I would talk about this is how God has provided for my family financially in different situations that we've been in. Maybe I would say God was, was faithful in this situation where we were anxious about how something was going to work out. You know, we just, it was up in the air and we were concerned about it and God was faithful just to, to make it all right. And I just, if I'm honest, I bet I'm a lot like you. And if somebody came to you out of the blue and said, tell me a time in your life when God was faithful to you. Here's one of the things that the psalmist comes up with. Well, there was this one time that God afflicted me. And he was faithful in that. Even in the affliction, even when God afflicted me, he was faithful in that. Why? Because in that affliction, I learned new things about his word. And in learning new things about his word, I learn new things about him. And in learning new things about him, I have a greater love for him. And now, in a way that I couldn't say on this side of the affliction, now I can say in a deeper and more meaningful way, the Lord is my portion. I love him more than anything else that this world has to offer. And I wouldn't have come to this point if I hadn't gone through this time of affliction. God's word is sure because God is faithful even in affliction. Number five, the last one. God's word gives his people hope. Hope. Verse 81 says, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. I have hope. When I read that, I think the word hope is a little bit confusing to most of us. I know it's confusing to me. And it's not confusing because of what Psalm 119.81 says. It's because it's confusing because of how we use the word hope on a day-to-day basis. For example, a few weeks ago, I was saying things like, I hope Tony Romo doesn't get hurt this year. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. Some of us right now are saying, I hope the Texas Rangers don't choke now that it's September. We'll see. Some of you may say from time to time, I hope I win the $500 million Powerball. But you know you're not going to win it. But you say, I hope I win it. In the Bible, when it talks about hope, it's more than just, I hope this thing works out okay. It may or it may not. It's more than just, I know it's a long shot, but I'm just kind of hoping that it may happen. Hope in the Bible 
is conviction and assurance and eager anticipation about what is coming in the future. It's not like this iffy category to it. Like, well, it may happen or it may not. God might be faithful tomorrow when the sun comes up or he might not, but he's, he's got a good track record so you can hope in that. No, biblical hope says he will be faithful tomorrow when the sun comes up. That's hope. It's not here now, tomorrow's tomorrow, it's in the future. But I have hope that it will happen. I have hope that these things will be true. I have hope that God will keep his promises. It's eager excitement and anticipation about things we know will come about. And that leads to this, which I think is the kicker of all this that we've talked about this morning. You and I can hope in God's word. And the reason we can hope in God's word is because in his life and in his death, Jesus hoped in God's word. Jesus hoped in it. The Bible says that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience because his driving desire was not to be comfortable, was not to be safe, was not to have a life of ease, but it was to do the will of his father because his father and his will was his portion. You are my portion. I want you more than anything else and I'm going to follow you no matter the circumstance. That was his hope. That was his portion. He believed that God would remember his word. And he consistently remembered God's word. When Satan came to tempt him, every time a temptation came, what did he say? It is written. It is written. The Bible says, I know it. I don't have to question it. And he believed that God would keep his word, that God would remember his word. Just one example of that. Psalm 16 says, this is a promise. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And as Jesus is on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane with the weight of our sin beginning to press down on him and he knows that within hours the wrath of the Father will be poured out on him because God promised Isaiah someone's going to come and bear your sins and he knew that that was about to happen. He knew that God would remember his word. He remembered his word and he remembered that God would keep his word in Psalm 16 to say, The Holy One will not see corruption. I believe that on the other side of this cross, there's a resurrection. I believe that when I lay down my life for the sheep, it's not going to be a waste. But there's victory coming three days later. You and I can hope in God's word because Jesus hoped in it. In his life of obedience and in his death for our sins, he hoped in it. Which means as we close this section of Psalm 119, you can have great and unshakable and certain hope that God will remember his word. He will remember his people and he will do everything for his people that he's promised to do. With that hope, I want to pray for you. Father, we're grateful that you are good and you are faithful. That we don't have to question or doubt or be uncertain about what your word will say to us, about whether it will be true tomorrow, about whether it can sustain us. Father, I pray for those in the room who have never looked to Jesus to find hope, and I pray that they would do that today. Father, I pray for those in the room who have turned to Jesus 
And I pray that we would understand that the answers that we need are right in front of us. And this psalm is just shouting out to us to look and to find those answers. Father, as we do that, we pray that your spirit would guide us, direct us, help us to understand, convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, and give us an unshakable hope underneath our feet that when you make promises to your people, you intend to keep them. Father, be honored as we sing together and as we worship you as the God who makes promises and who keeps promises. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.